particularly important to just read through because you probably have heard a lot about his ideas but not everyone has actually read him and after you spend about 40 minutes with me you will not be able to say that because you will have read him so I am going to read from Estranged Labor, which is in his Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts of 1844. So basically, this was supposed to have been a book, but he didn't finish it. Even like Estranged Labor, for instance, cuts off before he talks about the psychology and the predicament of the non-worker. Um, so the sur- what survives is basically four manuscripts. So I'm reading from the Marx Engels Reader, second edition, edited by Robert C. Trucker. This is, uh, we're supposed to read A Strange Labor and two others, but I'll probably just read the fourth one because why not? Um, but I really liked A Strange Labor so far. This is my favorite one. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, I basically have highlighted almost like every word <laughs> so in my notes. So let's get into it. We have proceeded from the premises of political economy. We have accepted its language and its laws. We presupposed private property, the separation of labor, capital, and land, and of wages, profit of capital, and rent of land. Likewise, division of labor, competition, the concept of exchange value, etc. On the basis of political economy itself, in its own words, we have shown that the worker sinks to the level of a commodity and becomes indeed the most wretched of commodities. All right, well, he just doesn't hold back, right? Like, right from the beginning. Um, And I think this is a common thought today in our world. I mean, he's talking about... You know, I assume factory workers in like the lowest of conditions, 12 hour days, etc. So it's for most people today, like that's not the, the situation. But I think that even if you are middle class in, you know, a developed nation, that there is the idea that there is self-exploitation still. There is, you know, the encounter or the participation in work that feels um, not like our essential life. It takes from us, and so we have to use the weekends or the little time we have in the evening to restore, and that is our true selves, that's our life, and uh, we're working only because we have to, and if we didn't have to, we wouldn't. Um, And that's why, you know, 
because of technology and that situation we see a surge of people wanting to become content creators or do something where they're their own boss but i think that that situation still can lead one to feel as if they're selling themselves and becoming a commodity you are what you are selling and marx is going to tell us how that drains the soul and restricts our senses and actually changes our ontology. That the wretchedness of the worker is in inverse proportion to the power and magnitude of his production. That the necessary result of competition is the accumulation of capital in a few hands and thus the restoration of monopoly in a more terrible form. That finally the distinction between capitalist and land rentier, like that between the tiller of the soil and the factory worker, disappears, and that the whole of society must fall apart into the two classes, the property owners and the propertyless workers. So I think that's really interesting. I don't think I completely understand his concept of property at this point. Um, why he focuses on it, why that's just, that seems like the core focus of what distinguishes a lesser economic system from a better, and even he, he even says that communism is not necessary, is not the goal, it's a necessary, not in this, um, this essay, but the next one, um, he ends it, which I think is interesting. Why do bugs love human beings? I don't understand. Um, okay. Uh, it says, and this is from, this is, okay, so Estranged Labor is talking a lot about the consequences of becoming a commodity. The second manuscript, Private Property and Communism, is more talking about the stages of human development and human history in terms of evolving economic systems. And uh, the last sentence of that says, communism is the necessary pattern and the dynamic principle of the immediate future, but communism as such is not the goal of human development, the structure of human society. So that's interesting. So I'm sure those of you who have read more Marx than I have know what that goal is. He also uses the term, well, as it is translated, um, but I'm sure it's somewhat similar in the German. I can imagine what it would be in the French. Uh, but socialism, so he uses both socialism and communism in his manuscripts, and I'm not clear at this point what he would see as the difference between them. So, oh, just one second. <laughs> I'm also cooking. I don't know why I start these um, readings when I'm in the midst of cooking, but uh, here we are. 
So I think it's interesting just going back to the text that he's saying that the more time and effort and the, I guess, greater quantity and quality of what we are producing, as that increases, basically who we are decreases. So tell me in the comments if you agree with that or not. Political, and I guess, you know, just before we go on, just trying to figure out what he means by property, I guess, is it maybe the difference between those who own the factory or own their own business, you know, or if you are an artist, you're, you are not alienated from your work unless you are creating for other people. Um... I mean, when I think of property, or most people do, I would think they, you know, what do you own, like a house, um, your car, maybe you don't have to work for another person. I mean, his idea is, is like a community, I think, um, because human beings are social beings, so to be in a in a situation or an organize an organization where everyone is is producing and then they maybe share the surplus. Because I think that's maybe the difference between the capitalist who is the in Marx's literature who own the property and the employers who don't the or sorry the employees the factory workers are are um sorry voice caught there they're they're working for their basic needs and not necessarily anymore but the work that they're doing is creating what I guess is called a surplus and that is what the property owners or the capitalists get and so there's this like pernicious kind of dependence and I mean he does as it is translated uses the word slave so just something to think about i guess political economy proceeds from the fact of private property but it does not explain it to us it expresses in general abstract formulae the material process through which private property actually passes and these formulae it then takes for laws it does not comprehend these laws. It does not demonstrate how they arise from the very nature of private property. Political economy does not disclose the source of the division between labor and capital and between capital and land. When, for example, it defines the relationship of wages to profit, it takes the interest of the capitalist to be the ultimate cause. It takes for granted what it is supposed to evolve. I think he's starting to make an argument here for understanding that 
are questioning the idea that there can be an alternate relationship between people, between workers, between all of these sort of elements in political economy. And Marx is saying, I think, that no, it is property, this private property as such, that is the cause of sort of the toxic, the toxicity of this capitalist situation. So it's kind of an all or nothing thing with him, I think, concerning private property. Similarly, competition comes in everywhere. It is explained from external circumstances. As to how far these external and apparently fortuitous circumstances are, but the expression of a necessary course of development, political economy teaches us nothing. So I guess he's referring to his, like, Hegelian development of various systems and well accompanied by human development like psychological and spiritual we have seen how to it exchange itself appears to be a fortuitous fact the only wheels which political economy sets in motion are avarice and the war amongst the avaricious competition avarice being greed for wealth or material gain precisely because political economy does not grasp the connections within the movement it was possible to counterpose for instance the doctrine of competition to the doctrine of monopoly the doctrine of craft liberty to the doctrine of the corporation the doctrine of the division of landed property to the doctrine of the big estate for competition, craft liberty and the division of landed property were explained and comprehended only as fortuitous, premeditated and violent consequences of monopoly, the corporation and feudal property, not as their necessary, inevitable and natural consequences. So it sounds like he's trying to make a different relationship between, I guess, the various aspects. And maybe by saying that all of this is, well, the, the focus is the interest of the capitalists. I mean, when I think about Adam Smith, for instance, He's mainly, well, when he's talking about the division of labor, he's talking about what Marx would call the non-capitalists, but it's all for the progress of the nation, like the gross national product, in a sense. So I don't know, just trying to keep 
piece what he's saying together because I feel like what he's talking about now is I don't know it's it's kind of complicated <laughs> maybe it's not tell me in the comments below I just feel like there's a lot that I'm missing Now, therefore, we have to grasp the essential connection between private property, avarice, and the separation of labor, capital, and landed property. Between exchange and competition, value and the devaluation of men, monopoly and competition, etc. The connection between this whole estrangement and the money system. Do not let us go back to a fictitious primordial condition as the political economist does when he tries to explain. Such a primordial condition explains nothing. He merely pushes the question away into a gray nebulous distance. He assumes in the form of fact of an event what he is supposed to deduce, namely the necessary relationship between two things, between, for example, division of labor and exchange. Theology, in the same way, explains the origin of evil by the fall of man. That is, it assumes as a fact, in historical form, what has to be explained. We proceed from an actual economic fact. The worker becomes all the poor, the more wealth he produces, the more his production increases in power and range. The worker becomes an ever cheaper commodity, the more commodities he creates. With the increasing value of the world of things proceeds in direct proportion of the devaluation of the world of men. I think that's a really apt statement. I just remember being in Selfridges in London once and when I was walking into a showroom of, I don't even remember, Louis Vuitton, um, so I, I don't, I don't know, I don't remember, but I, what I recall is the feeling of walking among those items that I didn't know the price of, but I knew that I could never afford, and I felt as if they were worth more than I was. So I kind of get what he says when he talks about the increasing value of the world of things. That is going to do something to the worth or the self-worth self of people. And it's also, and I'm just going to use content creation as a, an example, I wonder if you know, the bigger someone's, let's say, YouTube channel gets or whatever it is, I wonder if that doesn't necessarily increase how someone sees themselves. Because I think that with, depending on what kind of channel it is or how you're marketing yourself, you're branding yourself but there is a disconnect between, and not everyone, right? But I can imagine this is possible, that there is a disconnect between 
how you brand yourself, how someone brands themselves and themselves. And so to compartmentalize is probably less healthy and worthwhile than if you can truly be a creator and an artist. And that requires that you have some sort of indifference to the return or the gain. And not everyone has that ability to sustain their lives without feeling pressure to attract a return to their work and their time. Um, But it would require that you're doing your art just for the sake of it in order to not necessarily be limited by what the public wants, if that makes sense. Labor produces not only commodities, it produces itself and the worker as a commodity and does so in the proportion in which it produces commodities generally. This fact expresses merely that the object which labor produces, labor's product, confronts it as something alien. So again, there's like that disconnect. I'm producing something, but because it's for someone else, it it could even be like writing a book. I think it takes a lot of discipline every time, for instance, I go to the book that I'm writing now um, and, and doing it to do, to participate in this project on my own terms as I feel inspired to have it be soul work, to have it be a sense of joy and not to do it because I'm participating as a cog in a machine and trying to, you know, output my product. And then what do I do when I finish the book and hypothetically like sell it and it becomes, it gives me what I want, you know, and then do another book and another book and another book. And then at the end, like, so what, right? So. I think it takes discipline to do work as soul work and not mere work. And I think Marx really um, creates space for that conversation. Sorry, I'm looking at my oven. This fact expresses merely that the object which labor produces, labor's product, confronts it as something alien, as a power independent of the producer. The product of labor is labor which has been congealed to in an object, which has become material. It is the objectification of labor. Labor's realization is its objectification. In the conditions dealt with by political economy, this realization of labor appears as a loss of reality. And I just wrote Baudrillard for the workers, objectification as the loss of the object, an object bondage, appropriation as estrangement, as alienation. So how does what we produce in our work basically for others, so the 1%, depending on the businesses that we're working in, can get extremely rich, more rich than even makes them happy and gives and, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe there are, 
I don't, I don't know that world. Maybe uh, most of the rich people are very happy and soul satisfied. I'm just gonna assume that they're not thinking about my own nature and theoretically what I might be afraid of turning into if I had extreme wealth and power and I had grown up with it. I mean, I don't know, I, right? So tell me below, if you're the 1%, how happy are you? So much does labor's realization appear as loss of reality that the worker loses reality to the point of starving to death. So much does object, so if we're focused so much on surviving, on bare life, this is at what cost? What can we, how do we lose a sense of perspective and reality that we might have if our basic needs were assured to us? So much does objectification appear as loss of the object that the worker is robbed of the objects most necessary not only for his life but for his work. Indeed, labor itself becomes an object which he can get hold of only with the greatest effort and with the most irregular interruptions. So much does the appropriation of the object appear as estrangement that the more objects the worker produces, the fewer he can possess and the more he falls under the dominion of his capital, of his product capital. All these consequences are contained in the definition that the worker is related to the product of his labor as to an alien object. For on this premise, because you can imagine if, you know, you're working on some kind of project, whether it's a business, uh, you know, a social media venture, um, an academic book, um, etc. How intimately related do you feel with that project? I mean, probably you will be more happy, you'll be happier and more satisfied the more intimately connected you are and the more that you feel that that is yours and not just something to spin out as a means to another end, but your work being an end in itself I think gives more value. Just like Kant said that we should look at human beings not as means to an end, but it's more ethical, it's only ethical, to look at human beings as ends in themselves. And I think Marx is trying to do that concerning or articulate that concerning work. For on this premise, it is clear that the more the worker spends himself, the more powerful the alien objective world becomes when he creates over against himself, the poorer he himself, his inner world. And I love how Marx, you'll notice, keeps referring to the inner world or the spiritual dimension. Um, I mean, I think he's he cares about the consciousness and the psychology of the human being, I guess in a way that, you know, Hegel was trying to um, also focus on. 
It is the same in religion. The more man puts into God, the less he retains in himself. The worker puts his life into the object, but now his life no longer belongs to him, but to the object. And that makes sense because if you're putting so much time and effort into something, you feel like that part of you is taken away. Like there is a part of you that's taken away because it's your time, right? If you spend eight, nine, however many hours a day at a job that you don't like, that you don't necessarily feel connected to, what's yours is very small in terms of the hours left in the evening. Hence, the greater this activity, the greater is the worker's lack of objects. Whatever the product of his labor is, he is not. Therefore, the greater this product, the less he is himself. The alienation of the worker in his product means not only that, he is, that his labor becomes an object, an external existence, but that it exists outside him independently as something alien to him and that it becomes a power of its own confronting him it means that the life which he has conferred on the object confronts him as something hostile and alien let us now look more closely at the objectification at the produ production of the worker and therein at the estrangement the loss of the object his product so the question is you know what kind of relationship to work into what we produce would it be the most satisfying and life-giving? The worker can create nothing without nature, without the sensuous external world. It is the material on which his labor is manifested, in which it is active, from which and by means of which it produces. And Marx kind of goes into this um, here in other manuscripts, he wants to focus on nature and the relationship between human beings and nature and also the consequences of mere work to humans in relation to animal life or ways. And I, I don't know if those two threads of thought are connected in any way, but I don't know if I completely get what he, I, I get what he's saying about the animals, but I, I don't know if I completely get what he is trying to say when he brings nature into the conversation. So let me know in the comments below if you do. But just as nature provides labor with the means of life in the sense that labor cannot live without objects on which to operate, on the other hand, it also provides the means of life in the more restricted sense, i.e. the means for the physical subsistence of the worker himself. Thus, the more the worker by his labor appropriates the external world, sensuous nature, the more he deprives himself of means of life in the double respect. First, that the sensuous external world more and more ceases to be an object belonging to his, his labor, to be his labor's means of life. And secondly, that it more and more ceases to be the means of life in the immediate sense, means for the physical subsistence of the worker. So, is Marx doing something that 
like Heidegger <laughs> does in a sense, or did in a sense, um, in terms of the difference between using nature as a part of who we are and in a kind of symbiotic relationship versus using nature just to maximize utility and therefore we are estranged from nature when we should be a part of it because nature is us just throwing it out there thus in this double respect the worker becomes a slave of his object First, in that he receives an object of labor, i.e. in that he receives work, and secondly, in that he receives means of subsistence. Therefore, it enables him to exist first as a worker, and second, as a physical subject. The extremity of this bondage is that it is only as a worker that he continues to maintain himself as a physical subject, and that it is only as a physical subject that he is a worker. The laws of political economy express the estrangement of the worker in his object thus. The more the worker produces, the less he has to consume. The more values he creates, the more valueless, the more unworthy he becomes. The better formed his product, the more deformed becomes the worker. The more civilized his object, the more barbarous becomes the worker. The mightier labor becomes, the more powerless becomes the worker. The more ingenious labor becomes, the duller becomes the worker. And the more he becomes nature's bondsman. So I guess there's... If you're putting... The more work and time you're putting into something that's not necessarily yours, the less you can self-reflect and the less you are maybe honoring yourself. It would be different if, you know, it was a vocation and it weren't just for survival and you could enjoy your own surplus, I guess. Political economy conceals the estrangement inherent in the nature of labor by not considering the direct relationship between the worker labor and production. So, I mean, in a way, though, Adam Smith did think about this. He said that in the division of labor, those who were at the sort of most repetitive levels or mundane levels of work, um, they would need to be compensated by the government um, so that they don't become dull and torpid. So, I mean, Adam Smith did look at the psychological, ontological effects of industry. It is true that labor produces for the rich wonderful things. But for the worker, it produces privation. It produces palaces for the worker, oh, but for the worker, hovels. 
It produces beauty, but for the worker, deformity. It replaces labor by machines, but some of the workers it throws back to a barbarous type of labor, and the other workers it turns into machines. It produces intelligence, but for the worker, idiotacy, cretinism. The direct relationship of labor to its produce is the relationship of the worker. I mean, I was just thinking that, you know, Adam Smith said this, basically. Um, he said exactly this, but he said, but his attitude was basically like, but it's okay, we'll just like have after work programs for these people. So he sort of, he sort of justified it and minimized it, I guess. Um, all right, I will be right back. Let's continue on. The direct relationship of labor to its produce is the relationship of the worker to the objects of his production. The relationship of the man of means to the object of production and to production itself is only a consequence of this first relationship and confirms it. We shall consider this other aspect later. When we ask then what is the essential relationship of labor, we are asking about the relationship of the worker to production. Till now we have been we have been considering the estrangement, the alienation of the worker only in one of its aspects, i.e. the worker's relationship to the products of his labor. But the estrangement is manifested not only in the result, but in the act of production within the producing activity itself. So he doesn't want to reduce just whatever you produce. That is taking something away from the worker. It's as it is being produced. That is taking, that something is being taken away from the worker. How would the worker come to face the product of his activity as a stranger were it not that in the very act of production, he was estranging himself from himself? The product is, after all, but the summary of the activity of production. So I think the phrase estranging himself from himself is really interesting and speaks to the sort of spiritual call aspect I guess psychological would work too if then the product of labor is alienation product production itself must be active alienation the alienation of activity the activity of alienation in the estrangement of the object of labor is merely summarized the estrangement the alienation in the activity of the labor itself and then I really like this part that's coming up. What then constitutes the alienation of labor? First, the fact that labor is external to the worker, i.e. it does not belong to his essential being. And you might ask, well, isn't work always external? I don't think it is. If you can think of it as you know, in a sense, 
if it's soul work, right? So if the book that you're writing, because publisher perish, you need to put a book out there <laughs> as an academic. If the book that you're writing is something that you are not enjoying writing and producing, you're trying to squeeze it out of you basically because you need it to be published, you need to put it on your CV, you need your name to be recognized. There's going to be an antagonistic relationship between you and this project because you need it desperately for something. To level up your career, to get a job, whatever it is. But if you're writing a book because you have something to say, because you love the beauty of the creative project, um, because you enjoy creating something, you enjoy seeing something come to fruition, um, you're enjoying communicating and sharing important ideas and seeing how you can articulate them, and it is an art, then you can see how you would describe that as something that is a part of you. You would feel sad. You'll feel sad if you no longer get to work on it if it comes to an end. You would feel, you would mourn it for reasons beyond, you know, oh, I have to do it this again so I can get this product out if it disappeared somehow or it was taken from you you know it depends on the motivation it depends on the state of mind it depends on the situation within which you are creating this project it wouldn't feel so external if it was soul work That in his work, therefore, he does not affirm himself, but denies himself. Does not feel content, but unhappy. Does not develop freely his physical and mental energy, but mortifies his body and ruins his mind. So there's, there's a, like a dualism that he's bringing up, you know, or not, maybe not a dualism, but like two different paths, right? The soul work path and the path where labor is something you're alienated from that you're doing to produce surplus for someone else. The worker therefore only feels himself outside his work and in his work feels outside himself. He is at home when he is not working and when he is working he is not at home. His labor is therefore not voluntary but coerced. It is forced labor. It is therefore not the satisfaction of a need it is merely a means to satisfy needs external to it. Its alien character emerges clearly in the fact that as soon as no physical or other compulsion exists, labor is shunned like the plague. I think that's hilarious. So basically, you know, if you didn't have to be at your customer service job, you would absolutely like not do it. You're only doing it because you're getting paid and you need to pay rent and go to the grocery store. External labor, labor in which man alienates himself, is a labor of self-sacrifice or mortification. 
Lastly, the external character of labor for the worker appears in the fact that it is not his own, but someone else's, that it does not belong to him, that in it he belongs not to himself, but to another. So you're putting in time and effort into something that's not yours ultimately at the end of the day. Like if you're working retail, you're folding clothes and you're selling clothes and you're cleaning up the storeroom for someone who owns that, you are just a hired worker hired for the day to do service. But you, the only thing you take is wages. And Marx will say in a sense that raising wages only makes the slave have a better, how did he say actually? He says it so well. I don't know if he says it here or not, like in this manuscript. Okay, he says a forcing up of wages is nothing better, is nothing but better payment for the slave, but it doesn't release you from slavery, basically. Okay, where were we? Just as in religion, the spontaneous activity of the human imagination, of the human brain, and the human heart operates independently of the individual. That is, operates on him as an alien, divine, or diabolical activity. I think he's mentioning like the difference between the body and the soul in religion. How your soul is eternal, but your body is not. In the same way, the worker's activity is not his spontaneous activity. It belongs to another. It is the loss of his self. As a result, therefore, man, the worker, no longer feels himself to be freely active, but in any but his animal functions, eating, drinking, procreating, or at most in his dwelling and in dressing up, etc. And in his human functions, he no longer feels himself to be anything but an animal. What is animal becomes human, and what is human becomes animal. Certainly eating, drinking, procreating, etc. are also genuinely human functions, but in the abstraction which separates them from the sphere of all other human activity and turns them into soul and ultimate ends, they are animal. So he's talking about humans, what happens if humans don't have any activity that is for themselves. I think that in our modern day or maybe, I don't know, like historically, back this far back this goes but you know the idea of the hobby so you know you have your day job but you have a hobby and that creates space for activity for yourself you're just doing it you're you know adult coloring or knitting or you know playing the guitar or whatever it is whatever your hobby is you're doing it for yourself so that's activity for yourself but that's only if you have time and energy to do that after you finish working. We have considered the act of estranging practical human activity labor in two of its aspects. The relation of the worker to the product of labor as an alien object exercising power over him. This relation is at the same time the relation to the sensuous external world, to the objects of nature as an alien world antagonistically opposed to him. So I guess when work becomes antagonistic to you, it's 
really nature so Marx is saying it's nature as a whole that's becoming antagonistic to you because what you're working with is nature The relation of labor to the act of production within the labor process. This relation is the relation of the worker to his own activity as an alien activity not belonging to him. It is activity as suffering, strength as a weakness, begetting as emasculating. The worker's own physical and mental energy, his personal life or what is life other than activity, as an activity which is turned against him, neither depends nor on nor belongs to him. Here we have self-estrangement, as we previous, as we had previously the estrangement of the thing. So we're estranged from ourselves as well as what we're putting so much time and effort into. All right, so I'm gonna stop there. There's still more to go, so this will be a series, and I will have another um, podcast on this. Thanks so much for staying and listening, and please continue the conversation in the comments below.